Thanks, guys, and good morning, everyone. Welcome to our church. As Spence said uh, earlier, my name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors, so if you're visiting today, uh, welcome to our community and uh, to one of our gatherings. I'm uh, glad to have you guys here with us. Uh, today is a uh, kind of an exciting day. It's always exciting to start a new sermon series, which we're going to do today. I think Peter was talking a bit uh, about that uh, before. We'll be in, uh, in Galatians, but uh, we like to say, kind of starting off this uh, September school year, which uh, is sometimes a big uh, time of year for people to kind of check out churches, and we tend to have uh, a lot of visitors kind of all the time, actually, but September sometimes is uh, one of those times. So um, we talked, Spence did, our, the other pastor here, a bit about our vision and values last week, uh, at least kind of in a nutshell, which, um, which is great. I encourage you to listen to that on our website if you'd like to just know more about what makes us tick as a church. But uh, to tack on to that, we, um, in connection with starting a new series on a book of the Bible, uh, we just like to remind you guys, and if you're new to our church, um, this will sound kind of like a duh statement to some of you, but uh, it does not go without saying uh, anymore uh, in today's culture and just kind of where certain churches are at. Uh, but that is, we really love the Bible here. Uh, we, we, uh, and when I say that, I mean not just because it's an amazing book, but we, because we think it's God's words to us and that we need it because we're forgetful beings. And so one of the things we value as a church is not just the book, but we value hearing God through it. Uh, we think that God, even the first chapter of this book, we see God make things with his words out of nothing. He creates by speaking. And later in the book, he creates by saving. And when he sends Jesus into the world, he calls him the word, uh, not just his son, but the word, as if Jesus was this kind of final and ultimate way of saying, I love you, to lost people. And so we call Jesus the word. And then he calls the church, when he establishes the church after he dies and is raised, he calls the church to speak and to preach and to evangelize and to be word-centered and deed-focused, but word-centered as well in terms of how we communicate, what the center of our beliefs are, uh, but also um, as we draw people to that, but also as we kind of live out of that and, and to love and good deeds, that becomes kind of the, the sun to the solar system of all of our good works uh, as, as well. And so uh, as a church, we, we love this. And we're, again, we're not trying to reinvent the wheel. This is a, a long history and tradition of the church just being uh, as Paul says to the apostle to Timothy, his associate in the New Testament, preach the word in season and out. Be ready to do that when you're presented the opportunity. To all Christians, not just pastor types, but to all Christians, be ready to tell someone that Jesus is alive and to, to pronounce. Knowing that God creates and saves through speaking. And so for us, this is not just a learning time, it's a kind of a sacramental time. It's a grace-centered time where we can just sit under the fact that God is good He's kind towards sinners, unjustifiably, but in a good way, he's unfair uh, towards us. This is not about karma, but about gospel. He shows unfairness to us in a good way. And uh, for some of us, for the first time, hearing about that so we can put our faith in him rather than perform before him. And that, that'll come up a lot today and throughout this, this, uh, this series. Um, but with that said, uh, we are in, in uh, Galatians today, and I don't know, did that thing go off there, Brian? I don't know if the screen went off, but I'm not seeing... Yeah, did it just kind of kick off? All right, well, maybe you can see what happened, if you can figure it out there, but I'll just, Spence around, Spencer's gone too, look at that. Yeah, he's like, what are you paying this guy for? I mean, yeah, seriously, no, it's, um, it's, it's fine, thanks, thanks, Amy. Um, I'll just, yeah, it's fine, uh, we have the, the text on the screen, but if you want to turn in your Bibles to Galatians 1, that if you have it in front of you, and the sermon inserts too, pull that out so you can follow along. Uh, a little introduction, though, before we get to the first five verses. Galatians is a New Testament book. Uh, it's one of the earlier letters, uh, date-wise, of the New Testament written by the Apostle Paul. We'll talk more about him today, actually, more than the actual text of Galatians 
This will be kind of an introductory sermon today. I'll, I'll get to that. But written by Paul to the churches of Galatia, which was a region north of Galilee. Uh, and so um, I had a map here. I'll try to get that up for you in a second. But north of Galilee, where Jesus grew up, and north of Judea, which is where Jerusalem was, which is where Jesus died and was raised, and that first kind of uh, Jerusalem church was born before it expanded out into Asia Minor and other parts of the Roman Empire. And so the Apostle Paul, the author, was one of these early apostles who kind of instigated the church. He uh, called kind of the self-professed apostle to the Gentiles, which means non-Jews. He planted these churches throughout the region, and then he um, writes back to them to encourage them, as is the case for a lot of his letters in the New Testament. He's kind of like pastoring from afar. So writing back to encourage them, hearing about things going on in the church, theological issues, other kinds of sufferings, or things are going pretty great, as is the case, like the, the book of Philippians wants to write back and encourage them and say, kind of keep going. Galatians, uh, and we'll get to this more next week, is actually the opposite of Philippians in the sense that Paul is uh, really angry. Uh, not, you know, so much at the Galatians, kind of frustrated, shocked that they're changing their theology so quickly, but uh, especially at the false teachers who are infiltrating the church. And I'll, I'll touch on the occasion here a little bit uh, later today, but again, a little more next week. Today's going to be a little bit more who wrote this book and how is the gospel the center of his life and uh, sort of the first sentence here of, of, the, uh, of the book. So, um, so unlike some New Testament letters, this one's written to a region. A Gala- Galatia is a, a region, a, a Roman province of the day, not to a certain city like Philippi or something, as is the case in Philippians, but a bunch of churches within, within the Galatian region. It dates to the late 40s A.D., uh, just a short 17 years or so after Jesus was crucified, resurrected, and ascended to his father. So many people who are alive at this time when the book is written knew Jesus personally, heard him teach, saw his resurrected body, and who are in process of writing much of what we now call the New Testament. But the big idea to all of that, uh, here's the map, Galatians right there in the center, um, north of the Mediterranean there, in Asia Minor, but the, the big idea to all of that, there's more to say to that if you want more. Some of you, I know, we're just kind of thirsty for more of contextual stuff. Talk to me because, you know, I've got a stack of books this big I can pass on, or better yet, just meet you for coffee and we can, we can chat. But the, the big idea here is to understand this about just basically the Bible, but I'll focus on Galatians, is that Galatians is written to real Christian churches in a real geographical region with real cities, with real theological issues, by a real person with a name, Paul, who himself was a sinner saved by grace. So it's, in other words, this, this book and books like it in the Bible in no way smacks of myth or fabrication or bedtime story. It's a letter, a real historical letter written to historical people about a historical Christ. And so when you read names in the Bible uh, that are hard to pronounce, and you're like, oh my gosh, this is like trudge work here. You know, think part of the reason why these difficult to pronounce names, the Paul's like, oh, breath, I know Paul, you know, but uh, difficult names, part of the reason why they're there is to show these, these things, Old and New Testament, these things happened in the context of real people, to real people, among real people, people who didn't deserve grace, but God's showing people with names like us. You know, it's not just an idea. This really happened in history. So whenever we read the Bible, we're reading history and theology inter- intermingled. History and theology intermingled, not just one or, uh, or the other. And so because of this then, when, you'll see this in a second with Galatians, if you're new to it, or just new to the Bible, 
when we get to a letter like this, which again is a letter, it, you know, it doesn't really center on or start with a bunch of proverbial teachings or moralistic lists, but rather truths tied to real human experiences with God. So a big part of the first chunk of the letter is just Paul's story. He's just saying, this is who I am. This is how I was saved. This is how I got to be here uh, where, where I am. And then he goes on from that and, and starts to, to teach in a more doctrinal manner. So that is a part of it, but a lot of it's just his story, uh, which is really cool to have that in one of his letters. We don't get that a lot in, in, in his letters, so, but we have it here. So truths tied to real human experiences with Jesus, and more than this, pronouncements of his grace shown towards us through his Son. So again, it just doesn't smack of myth, you know, or just kind of religious teaching. It's, it's actual history. It, myths aren't written like this, with real names and real cities mentioned. That's not what myths are, uh, but rather uh, this is history. And so um, based off of the fact that God came into history as a real person, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, his son, sent his son into the world to become like us so that he could advocate for us and die for us. And so based off of that, then, we have real people being confronted with that amazing news, that amazing grace, being saved, letters written to people like us who can then see this as relevant. Otherwise, it's just not relevant. It brings into serious question if how relevant this is to us if it's just kind of fabricated or if it's just morals. Uh, because morals are everywhere. Why do we need the Bible for that? It's everywhere. Uh, but instead, this is, this is truthful history about Jesus. So with all that said, let's uh, dive in. Today we're going to look at um, a few things. I want to read the first five verses. We'll do it again next week. Touch on a few things here, especially in the first verse, but just kind of get your bearings. Uh, the first five verses, then we'll spin off into Acts 9, and I'll explain that in a minute. But verse 1 says, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of, God, of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So that's not the end of the book. It might feel like it is. Like, that's a pretty good little book right there, right? Mini book or tract or something, but it, it goes on six chapters worth. But a great little introduction here and a very important beginning for us. Very important. Paul identifies himself as the author, as an apostle, which means a sent one. It's a leadership role that Jesus' disciples inherited after his resurrection, and Paul was given as well by grace to kind of instigate the church's beginning and to have the authority to write uh, parts of the New Testament. But then he says this, not from men nor through man, so not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. So he's saying, I am an apostle, I have this role, and to back up a bit, I'm saved at all, you know, then I was given this role through Jesus Christ and from him, uh, it's gift language as a gift, and through God the Father who raised Jesus from the dead, uh, not, not by me, implied. So he's, a, he's a, an apostle through the one who was raised for us, that death might be overcome on our behalf. So now, if you're new to Galatians, or it's been a while, that phrase right there, if you're an underliner or highlighter in your Bible, underline that sucker. That is really important. It's like a, a topic sentence to the paragraph that constitutes the rest of the book. 
and it's testimonial. He's saying, this is true about me, and it's true about me as a paradigm then for what's true about all sinners who become Christians who are saved by, by Jesus, which we'll come to uh, in, in a second. But that, that phrase right there, that qualifier, is not, in any, is not in all of Paul's letters. He could have just said, Paul an apostle, to the churches in Galatia, and then gone on. But he says, Paul an apostle, not an apostle by men nor, nor through man. It's not a human thing. Given as a gift. Salvation given and this role given. Wasn't seeking it, didn't deserve it, handed to me on a platter by grace. Then he goes on to the churches in Galatia. So he's saying here, to, to borrow from another one of his letters, I am what I am by grace. Man didn't save me. An idea didn't save me. I didn't save me. Jesus saved me and called me to this role. And so it's not just a truth for Paul. It's very personal and it's testimonial. And so to help us really see this, and it's, consider it like a hyperlink that you click on here, taking us back to Acts 9, a different part of the New Testament that's more narrative, this is what he's thinking. He's thinking about his story, about how he was called first to believe in the gospel in the first place, how Jesus confronted him, loved him, didn't judge him even though he deserved it, but was kind to him, and then gave him this role as an apostle. Uh, that's all in his mind as he writes the whole book, but as he writes this first line qualifier, not, not from men nor through man. And so those two things are are connected. So to help us see that, let's uh, read Acts 9. You can follow along on the screen if you want or turn in your Bibles to Acts 9, 1 through 9 and skipping some verses and we'll look at 17 to 19. I'll, I'll fill in the gap there in a second, but let's, let's read this. But Saul, Saul's the same name as Paul. He's referred to Saul and Paul interchangeably in the Bible, mostly Paul after he became a Christian, but it's not contrary to what some people think. It's not a name change. God didn't change his name from Saul to Paul. Uh, it's the same, basically, name, and he's just referred to both interchangeably. So it's like, you know, one guy having a name and a nickname or something, kind of going back, uh, back and forth. So don't get confused by that. It's the same guy. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, the Jewish high priest, and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, the way is what Christianity was referred to before it was called Christianity. Men or women, he may bring them bound to Jerusalem. So stop right there for a second. Paul, or, or Saul, used to kill and imprison and drag parents away from their kids, Christian parents away from their kids and imprison them uh, to Christians. Now he's a Christian. You know, so the guy that wrote this letter used to murder Christians. He used to imprison Christians. He used to rip apart Christian families. All in the name of God, thinking he was doing service to God to squash out this Jewish sect that was rising up on the heels of a supposed resurrection around 33 AD. And so in the, supposedly in the service of God, he's going to do this, and he's been doing this for years uh, up, to, up to this point. If you've read Acts 7, when Stephen is stoned, an early Christian is killed just simply for being a Christian, it says Paul is there, a man named Saul is there, and he's overseeing the whole thing. So he's overseeing the murder of this uh, Christian named Stephen. So I encourage you to read that too for context um, this, uh, this week. Um, and so, so picking up in verse 3 then, uh, this is who he is. This is his background, but now he's a believer. But let's read how this happened. So in verse 3, now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. And suddenly 
a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you'll be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. So uh, Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Uh, to fill in the gaps here, then Jesus appears to a man named Ananias, and the vision tells him to go lay hands on Saul and heal him of his blindness. Saul, too, gets kind of a complimentary vision of Ananias, so he's expecting him. Verse 17, then fast forward. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at, at Damascus. All right, so this narrative is uh, its a wonderful, wonderful story. It's uh, confusing and, you know, exceptional in some ways in terms of how it might feel different from our experiences. But uh, it is one of the most flushed, this reality is, one of the most flushed out conversion stories we have in the entire Bible. And there, there are others that you can, you can compare. It depends what chunk of scripture you're looking at here. But in terms of like a convert, Christian conversion story, this is basically... Uh, the most uh, flushed out. And to us, we might read this and think as a Christian in the room, this might seem exceptional or unique or hard to relate to. And in one sense, it is unique. Uh, it, but in another sense, it's actually quite typical of every Christian's experience with Jesus for all time. Not just a conversion, but daily as we relate with him and, and to him by his grace. And that's really, really good news. And so to kind of pull from that then, I want to spend some time looking at three big things here. Um, before we get to those, we'll look at some context, but some things that as we look at this as a paradigm of our experience, what do we learn? What do we learn about, about salvation, about Jesus' posture towards us as sinners, about how much he's involved with our conversion and our lives, how much he cares and loves? You know, on what basis and by what basis we're saved? In the Bible, if you're new to the Bible, this is a, Consider this some advice on how to read it. Uh, this is um, a biblical precedent in the way that actually the New Testament reads the Old in some ways. And, but that is, the Bible is a book of, par of paradigms. When it looks at Israel, they are a microcosm, a book of microcosms as well, a microcosm or a paradigm of the, the human experience. So it's not just them. It's kind of like a, you know, something happens to someone, and because they're humans, again, it happened in real history, we can look at that and say, I'm, I'm in the same boat. And the Bible says God never changes. So if he shows grace to this person or nation or group of people and he doesn't change, then can he show it to me as well? And the answer is a resounding absolutely. And so they're, they're microcosm, small kind of instances of sinners kind of wrestling with God or seeking to approach him or being blind to his grace, but God's showing up anyway and showing it to him or just something like that. And it's, it's the same with Paul. It's just, New Testament's full of these as well. Even though it's not, we can't look at this and say, yeah, that's my exact experience, it still is a, a microcosm of the human experience. Nothing in the Bible holds up its hand and says, this is special. 
There is no teaching in the Bible that says what happened to Paul is unique. In fact, the opposite is the case. Paul is saying, I'm a sinner like all of you. God's grace to me is the same towards all of you. And so we, we, we have to be careful with the presuppositions you bring to this when we read this. Don't just instantly think, yeah, that didn't exactly happen to me, so the way I approach God is different. The way he approaches me is different. There is no verse that says this is unique. There's no biblical precedent for it. And so with that in mind then, the first kind of instance of grace we see, in fact, this is kind of a, a catch-all statement. We'll get to those three things I was mentioning here in just a minute. But the first kind of contextual thing here is just to ask the question, when does Acts 9 occur? What's happening? What are the moving parts here? And the answer to that is Saul is, when is he saved? Saul is literally on his way to imprison and even murder Christians, and then, bam, Jesus shows, shows up, and he shows kindness to him. He shows grace to him and mercy and patience. You know, that, that, that is, uh, I mean, even right here at this moment, before we even really get into Galatians, this is a sinners in the room rejoice moment. Because if that's true, if he appeared in this moment, at this juncture, the worst moment, basically, of this guy's life, the, the worst mark on his spiritual and otherwise resume, if at that juncture he appeared and showed kindness, then he can to you as well. And he does to you as well and to me. Because God doesn't change. And God doesn't show partiality, according to James 1. So not Paul's shiniest of moments morally, right? Uh, it's an understatement. Nor actually is Paul in any way seeking God here. You could even say that he's actively attacking God himself. Because that's why Jesus says to, to Paul, why are you persecuting me? It's a very loaded phrase. We'll unpack that throughout the morning here. But, but just at first glance, Jesus says, why are you attacking me to Paul? And Paul's not intending that. But because he's, attending, or he's attacking his people, Jesus' people, his bride, and in other parts of the Bible it says his body, the church of Jesus' body on earth, it's as if he's attacking God himself. And so then to add that in the equation, in the moment of Paul attacking God, seeking Jesus' harm, Jesus shows him kindness. Jesus shows him patience worst moment of this guy's life that's the context here in that precise moment in that precise moment of actively seeking the son of god's harm jesus interrupts saul's life not to judge him but to save him and here's the good news if you believe in jesus christ for the forgiveness of your sins that is your story too that's essentially what has transpired spiritually behind the curtain so to speak to get you to that point of of belief and so with that kind of umbrella context stated, there are so many things. There could be probably ten things here, but three things, three big things. We learn about our own spiritual journeys here from Acts 9. Uh, if we approach this as a paradigm, a microcosm, which we should, uh, what do we learn about our own conversion stories and just lives daily as Christians? So this, this applies to all of you if you're not a Christian yet or if you are barely or if you just are or if you have been for 30 years plus. Uh, it's the same. What do we learn about our own spiritual journeys here as, as they relate to, to Christ? So think wider than, than conversion. Because remember, Paul's writing to Christians in Galatians. He's citing, alluding to his conversion as though it matters to Christians, not just to non-Christians. 
You know, b- belief in the gospel is important every day as believers. The Galatian, it's, it's to the churches, to groups of Christians who know the gospel in Galatia, that they need to know these things and remember these things. So the gospel becomes daily food, not just the doorway to the faith, but the path we journey on every, every, every day since. All right, so the first thing is, uh, when God saves us, he helps us to see what our true problem is. So when Jesus says, again, you are persecuting me, the Son of God himself, but rise, there's so much loaded in that. A lot of grace, but also a lot of kind of qualifying, you know, here's what your, here's what your big problem is, and here's what I'm here to kind of solve. So it's interesting, when Jesus, say, when Jesus is saying this, he's, he's raising the issue, raising the bar a bit, way beyond what Paul's thinking, and he's saying the issue is you and I are at war. That's the problem for every person who has ever lived. It's not that they've done bad things. It, it is that. They, but it, it's higher than that. It's that we are at war with God himself. It's really interesting. Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? He does not say, stop persecuting my people. Is that interesting? He could have. What about the murder thing? Does anyone else wonder that when you read this? I do. I'm like, well, what about address the murder stuff, Jesus? You know, and he doesn't. It's really it's fascinating. He says, the biggest issue is you are actually, you and I are at odds. Not the fact that you're murdering Christians. That's a sub-issue, very important issue. And Paul doesn't go back to that. Jesus isn't saying it's okay to do that. God's against murder. But he doesn't address it. The issue is you and I are, we're enemies. You're attacking me. It's war language. You and I are at, are at odds. That, that's the problem is we are not where God is. We don't seek him. We do things in his name sometimes, but it's wrong. It's not right. And, and so there's, there's this enmity that Jesus has to, and this is what he ends up addressing then. He graciously raises it. And then, but then his, his composure, his posture is beautifully gracious. He says, but rise. Which that contrast, again, if you're underliners, underline the but there. But rise. Note the contrast. I, I think this conveys the idea that you know, you, you should, you've been persecuting God himself, attacking God himself. You should be judged. But instead, it's a but language. But instead, you're not going to be. You should be judged, but instead rise. But instead, I'm going to show you kindness. But instead, I'm not going to judge you. The contrast there is so, it's just ripe, you know, for picking. The, the, the contrast. This should happen. This did happen. This should happen in response. But it's not. Instead, just get up. I'm calling you my son now. You're mine. I'm going to show you kindness where you should be shown punishment. This is a grace not works moment. It's a gospel not karma moment. What would happen if karma ruled the universe in this moment? What would happen if karma ruled the universe? The precise opposite. The exact opposite. Right? The Bible is anti-karma. Grace is unfair. Paul didn't deserve this. He deserved the opposite, but he was shown undeserved favor. Isn't this great news? I mean, sinners in the room, rejoice. But if you're not a sinner, it's not good news for you. But if you're a sinner, it's really good news. If you know your, if you know your heart, if you see yourself in his story. So kind of the backdrop to this in part is understand the problem more so that the, the good news would become uh, even greater. That's a little bit more for future weeks. That's the first thing, is our problem is really heightened and flipped and kind of on its head. 
it's not so much about what we do, but about being reconciled with God. And Jesus is that reconciler. He's showing grace in this moment. All right, second. When God saves us, it happens suddenly and on Jesus' watch. Jesus is clearly the instigator of salvation here, right? Clearly. Is Paul doing anything, anything at all to contribute? 0.5%. Is he doing anything at all to contribute to his salvation? Non-rhetorical. Anything at all. Someone just say it. Not nothing. Nothing. Nothing, nothing, nothing. Right? In fact, he's in the worst of moments when he's identified for this. So when I say suddenly, I don't mean temporal necessarily. We all have different stories in terms of how we come to Christ. But the point is here, it happened when Paul wasn't kind of pursuing it. You know, he was pursuing, he was on his way, kind of nose down to the ground, full of anger and just misguidedness religiously. And, and it suddenly just happened. It happened when, when God intended it. So our conversions may seem much more mundane than Paul's, no less miraculous, to be clear, but they might seem more mundane. But the point is, we become Christians precisely when God intends us to become Christians. We become Christians precisely when God intends us to be. And don't over-philosophize that. That doesn't mean that we don't have real choices. It doesn't mean that God is showing kind of this extreme partiality or anything like that. It just means that he's very involved. You know, it, he didn't die for our sins and rise again, then withdraw and leave the work of saving people to Christians alone. He's filling the church with his spirit. He's appearing to people on roads saying, I didn't just die for your sins and rise again, but now I'm appearing to you to make sure you understand it and to work in your heart, to work in the circumstances in your life to make sure you're hearing it and receiving it. He's very, very, very involved in our, in our salvation. It's really good news. So, and, and again, all that is to show that it's by grace that he saves, not our works. So let, let me just ask you, why was Paul saved at all? Why was the Apostle Paul saved here in Acts 9, from what we know about him and about what it says? We can't say because he was good. We can't even say because he was seeking God. He wasn't. He was on his way to murder Christians. The only answer left, the only thing that makes sense from what we know about God being the essence of love is that it must be love. It has to be love. It has to be love that led him to this. God, God didn't need Paul. Jesus, did, Jesus isn't thinking, oh man, what am I going to do now that I'm in heaven? How am I going to save people? I've got to identify this guy. He's kind of smart. Like, that's, that's ridiculous. God's not, Jesus isn't impotent with power. You know, he's able to choose and use anybody. He didn't need Paul. It has to be love. He loved him. So let me ask you, Christian, in the room, why were you saved at all? Think about, think about your conversion. Think about how you got to be where you are, whether it was a day or a season. Um, why, or why were you saved? Just think about your life, even in light of Acts 9. You know, if you start thinking about, in light of that question, if you start thinking right away about how much you were seeking him, how you read your Bible cover to cover, how you were just always interested in God, that was just always kind of a thing for you, you're wrong. <laughs> you're wrong. That's not it. That's not why you were saved. You were saved because God loved you, and he, lo he wanted you to be. Now, th those, those, part, those aspects I just kind of listed there, they might be, be a part of your story. God may have used that. It's not wrong to, like, 
kind of phrase drop those things necessarily, but the ultimate reason with Acts 9, I mean, if we start going to those things first, how is that consistent with Acts 9? How is that consistent with grace? If we go to the circumstances, what we were doing versus Jesus just making them matter or letting them appear in our heart. We, make, we can easily make it about us and about works more than, more than grace. We, you and I were saved because we were loved. That's it. He died for our sins. That was on him. But he also appeared that grace. He, he made it appear to our heart too. That also is on him. It, it, that, that's why it's consistent. It's, not just, it's inconsistent to say that God you know, died for our sins. That's on him. But we're the ones that figure it out. That's on us. Those are, those are kind of inconsistent thoughts biblically. Not that we're not a part of the, the story. Not that we don't have real choices. We do. But that he makes it beautiful. He makes it matter. He makes it appear. And so we pray for conversions. Otherwise, why would you? So he intends our, our conversion. He intends that we believe. I mean, every day, Christian, every day, we, we, um, the gospel's beautiful because God wants it to be to us. You know, and that, that's really good news too. Uh, it, it, all of a sudden, when we start to think this way, all of a sudden, Every moment becomes sacred. And we're thinking, God in that moment is, he, you know, when I'm reading the Bible, that's because he wants to speak to me. It's not me searching for him in a dark cave, trying to do the theological math, but he wants to speak to me. It's a very different thought. He wants to reveal himself to me. So the way we do theology then changes uh, as, as well. Let's keep going. Uh, number three here, uh, the third thing from Acts 9. When God saves us, he blinds us to things that we thought we knew. Uh, so, so like Paul, who after seeing Jesus, couldn't even see when his eyes were open. Uh, it's, it, it's interesting this happens at all, and uh, like a lot of things, physical things in the Bible that point to spiritual realities all the time, including in Jesus' ministry, this I think is another one of those instances, because he didn't have to go blind. I think Jesus intends this in order to show him grace and heal him, but first, to kind of deconstruct, to kind of deconstruct. And, and what I mean by that is Paul uh, thought he was seen, but he wasn't. Paul had to not just see spiritually, but he had to become blind to things that he was formerly seen, when he wasn't really seen. So what I mean by that is he thought he was a good person. He thought he was in the service of God. He kept law, God's laws really well. He led people spiritually. He was like a really good pastor, except that he murdered people. There's that, you know, kind of just Mark, but... Uh, but he was like a really good pastor on the outside. But he completely missed the boat at the same time. And so the, what this tells us is the problem is uh, not just that we are sinners, but that we many times don't even know that we're sinners. The problem is not just that we've done wrong, but that we don't even know we do. Our moral compass is completely twisted. See, if we don't even know what good is sometimes, like Paul, he didn't even know what good was. See how much more we need Christ, a Savior? That's the problem with morality, is that if we just overly simplify and actually kind of change the gospel into making it about making bad people good, Jesus just telling us how to live, the problem with that is we don't know how to live. We don't know what good is. It may be in part, but sometimes we don't. Paul clearly didn't. You know, so if, if we don't know what good is, if it's twisted sometimes, or even if misguided goodness itself can be evil, how much more do we need Christ alone? you know, to, to save. And that's where this blindness issue comes in. It's not just about Jesus bringing us from bad to good, but about him changing our definition of good to be more about Jesus himself. 
We don't just need Jesus to say, yeah, these are good things that you're not doing. We need him to say, I'm your goodness. You need me. Clothe yourself with my love. All these good things you are doing, void of me, how is that really any better than all these bad things, ultimately, if you're not getting to me? Paul was on the road in the service of God, being a religious, zealous person. Extremely zealous, but without knowledge. And Jesus had to interrupt religion. He had to interrupt goodness, at least misguided goodness, to bring people to, to himself. So it's, it's striking here on the road. I kind of alluded to this earlier, but it's, it's striking that Jesus doesn't just say to Paul, stop murdering people. Why doesn't he do that? The answer is because Paul needed him, Jesus, more than teaching. If it was just about teaching, Paul would say, just stop murdering people. That's back here in the Old Testament. Did you forget about that? And here, let me kind of set you straight. Then he'd disappear and let Paul live his life. But that's religion. Every other religion would basically rewrite Acts 9 in that capacity. Jesus would appear and say, here's how to have your best life now. Here's how to live a better life. Stop murdering. That's actually wrong. You can do it. But instead, he doesn't even address that because that's not his biggest need. Jesus is his need. Jesus is love. Jesus is resurrection that actually happened. That's his biggest need. Reorienting to him. You know, so being blinded towards religion so that we can see the gospel. Blinded towards ourselves. Blinded towards all the good things we've ever done so that we can actually see his grace and be fluent in it. That's what, that's what this is imaging here. That's what he wants. You know, so, so what spiritual things then are keeping you from Jesus and his gospel? What spiritual good things can keep you from him? What things are you doing even in the name of Christ that are puffing you up rather than humbling you before the foot of the cross? It's very possible to have a Jesusless Christianity in our lives. It's one of the most wicked, deceptive, and dangerous things in the universe. A Jesus plus something else theology. It's a threat to our church. It's a threat to any church. It's a threat to all of us in the room on an individual basis. Is to add something to grace. And, and to get a kind of a cheap, you know, shell-like version of Christianity that at the core is more about doing than about the bloody cross. It is one of the biggest threats that you'll ever face, guys. I will, we will. As your leaders, um, we try to be cognizant of this as much as we can and pray against it and preach against it and actually read the Bible the right way against it to remind ourselves together, but pray for us in that. Pray for all of, pray for all of us in that journey. Uh, we need each other in that regard. It's very possible to have a Jesusless Christianity. And if Jesus intended that, again, he would say, Paul, just stop murdering. That's Christianity. That's what he'd say. Just stop murdering. That's the right thing to do. That's Christianity. Just do it in my name. Just don't murder in, in my name. And that's Christianity. He doesn't say it. He says, come to me. He blinds him to all of that. And he restores his sight so he sees grace alone, not grace plus, plus something else. So going back to Galatians 1 then, and again, we'll talk more through this next week, uh, the first 10 verses actually. But this is why Paul begins his letter this way. 
not from men nor through man, not through people, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. The occasion of this letter, which we'll talk more about in coming weeks, is that there are false teachers infiltrating the churches who are upholding certain aspects of the gospel, but adding extra things to it as well, nullifying the whole thing. They, again, as I said this before, they, they approach Christianity with a Jesus plus something else type mindset. But the phrase, not from man nor through men, and saved by works, are completely contradictory theologically. It's, it's like in uh, Zechariah 4, 6, our last series in um, the first part of the year, when God says this to the prophet Zechariah, to the people of Israel, not by might nor by strength, but by my spirit. It's the same language, same idea. It's all over the Bible. Not by might nor by strength. Not by human might nor by human strength, but by what I do. Galatians 1, not from men nor through man, but by Jesus doing everything. See, this is, this is the drum that God beats over and over and over again. And he says, get in the rhythm of it. Feel the rhythm of the gospel. Let it beat in your soul. And come against things that threaten that beat. And so Paul, when he's saying this, is he's, he's writing testimonially. He's saying, I did absolutely nothing to deserve or earn salvation or this role as an apostle. This is my story. Apostles saved, saved and an apostle. Not by human effort, but given. And now he's going to say, let me talk to you more about what that means for you. Your story is the same as mine. And he's going to come at these false teachers with, with a gospel that completely contradicts a you-can-do-it type mindset. Uh, even a, I think Jesus did rise from the dead, but I also think you need to blank. So something very Christian-sounding, but adding to it, Paul's going to say, throw the whole thing out. Whole thing. When you add to Jesus, you, you dilute it. Uh, you, you can't partake of it. You know, if, if there was j- just a, a drop of car oil in a whole bowl of soup, you wouldn't touch the whole thing, right? You'd be like, gross. Get it out of here. You know, w- one little drop of works in a bowl of a soup full of grace Throw the whole thing out. So, so three things quick. Uh, again, this is more introductory today. Kind of get our, uh, wet our appetite a bit for the book. But uh, three, three things. One, uh, I want to ask that you guys read this whole book this week. If you haven't already, or if you did, do it again. Read this whole book with this type of backdrop. Noting how Paul is contrasting grace and works. Uh, there, there are aspects of theology that are both and. Kind of like, yeah, it's kind of both and together. This is not one of them. This is either or. It's either works or grace. It's either law or uh, spirit or faith, he says. It's either the flesh or doing or it's the spirit. All these contrasts are set up over and over and over again. He makes arguments from his story, from human example, from the Old Testament, from other aspects of Old Testament narrative, from common sense, uh, from an analogy of like um, being brought up like under a guardian or like an in-home helper and then kind of graduating out of that, all, all these things and more. He's, he keeps coming back and giving examples and examples and examples and examples and saying, because it's by the Spirit alone, believe the gospel and live this way. And so he gets uh, kind of ground-level practical at, at, at the end. 
So read this book. Uh, and then second, uh, you know, one way to live a gospel-centered life is just think about how you talk about your spirituality. Make it more about Jesus than you. Uh, what, what I mean here is um, think about how Paul's talking, not to just copy it word for word necessarily, though that's fine, um, you know, but, but to make something like this a part of our testimonies, or our, our stories, is the gospel's not something I figured out on my own or fabricated, but it's something Jesus revealed to me in his love for me. So it's not an idea that we just ascribe to one day because it, it made sense. That may have been how it looked. It's not just that, but rather the truth that Jesus had to invade our hearts to cause us to believe. Like uh, 1 Peter 1, somewhere in there, says that he caused us to be born again. He, he, there's that participation God has with our decisions and choices and the journeys that we have that look like decisions and reading books of the Bible and hearing the gospel preached and all this stuff. There's participation God has with that that has to be pointed at. Otherwise, we can send the wrong message about the gospel. So if there's too much, in other words, if there's too much I found Jesus in our stories and not a good healthy dose of at the same time God found me, what are we saying about the gospel and how is that consistent with Acts 9? You know, it's, 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 there's too much of us at the center of I found Jesus and too little of, of Christ. There, there, there can be at least if we're not careful. So in other words, this is an example, but just be, be careful with how we talk about and intentional with how you talk about your story. There might be a lot of great reasons for believing uh, apologetic, kind of defense-based, reason-based arguments. That's great. At the end of the day, God made it matter and made it understandable and he made it beautiful. So give him credit. Then as you talk about the cross and how that was a gift, that was given, it will complement more to those who are seeking and to Christians who already know but are forgetting. And then third, just simply, all of you, non-Christians, Christians, wherever you're at spiritually, rest in grace. Here's the reality from the first few verses. Jesus gave himself for our sins. Verse 4. He gave himself to Paul on that road to Damascus, and he gave himself to you on the day you first believed and every day since. Right now in this very room, he's giving himself to you. He's speaking to you through his word. Amazing grace. And he graciously blinded you to religion, and he blinded you to godless morality, and he opened your eyes to his grace. And, and, and look at this verse uh, at, the, at the end. We'll talk more about this next week. But he says, according to the will of God our Father, meaning he wanted to give everything to you. Jesus died according to God's plan. Paul was an apostle and saved because God willed it. He wanted that to happen. Jesus was raised by the will of God. So he wanted to deliver you. He wanted to die for you. He wanted to give everything to you. And, and he did. You know, so guard your hearts and your minds, the Bible says. You know, guard it against false images of God and, and the gospel. When you think about him, what do you think about? When you think about when you were saved, what do you think about? That's very important, actually. When you share it, that's very important. What we communicate about the gospel, it's in everything we do and think. And uh, what this is saying, Paul's example, the way this is written, and it's going to just seep into the whole book, is, is Paul is saying, Jesus did everything. And uh, I, I wouldn't be here if Jesus didn't love me and intend me and make the, the facts about him 
matter and make them beautiful and make them something I actually wanted to kind of partake of. And so rest in this, you guys. Rest in his grace. Believe the gospel. Believe that he died for you and that his grace is a real thing right now in real time in, in this very room and believe afresh or for the first time.